Good afternoon. This is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. With me, as usual, is Joe Works, and also is with me Chase Byers. Chase is in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Joe is in Elmira, New York, and I have done everything right so far. I got a beautiful note from you, Joe, just a minute ago. <laughs> Joe sent me a text that said, Jeff, don't forget to do all the things you forget to do. <laughs> you do have us in gallery view and not speaker view, but oh, we'll, I forgot we'll, to do that. All right, okay, all right. Can't there bat a thousand every week, but it's fine. Wow, okay. I, what does that make me batting seven fifty or something? I don't know. Okay, we're going to talk about Micah chapter four and uh, five today. Uh, this is a passage in which we have a prophecy uh, of where the Messiah would come from. And what is interesting about it is that it's a prophecy that the Jews recognized as being a prophecy of where the Messiah would come from. And so we'll see that. But first of all, let's start in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, guys. And um, this first few verses in Micah chapter 4 is familiar sounding from elsewhere in the Bible, is it not? Isaiah chapter 2, right? Yeah, and Mike and Isaiah are contemporaries, and this is almost word for word. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths." For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let's whip through this. I want to note the last days. I want to note the concept of all nations or many nations coming. I want to note the concept of the house of the Lord. And I want to understand Zion. Can we do that in 30 seconds or so? Take us well, through it. let's do what we can. And it may take a little more than 30 seconds. But where would you like to start? How about the last days? So many people, they open their Bibles and they see a reference to the last days and they immediately assume we're talking about something in our future and uh, they start thinking rapture and all of that kind of thing. Um, and, and concepts really that aren't even in, in the Bible. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? Well, for starters, if we want to take it personally to ourselves, it's not really fair because this letter that we're reading or book that we're reading is hundreds of years old. And so he's writing to an audience then about their last days. So it's not exactly the safest thing to assume that it's our last days as well. So when you say he's writing to an audience about their last days, were the last days in the days of this audience? In other words, were the people who are alive in Micah's days alive when these things came to pass? Well, Hebrews 1 would say that God has in these last days spoken through Jesus, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Yeah. Seems like the last days are referring to uh, the time of Jesus coming. Um, I probably take a little bit different view than what most people I know take on this. We end up at the same place, I think. Um, uh, a lot of times people, what I hear people say is that the last days is referring to the Messianic age uh, from the time of Christ on. That's kind of a, a common uh, thought amongst a lot of my friends at least i would take the last days as being the end of the jewish era uh i would think that if we were talking about the messianic era we would call it the beginning days or something like that 
Um, but the last day seems to imply an end of something. And I would suggest that we're looking at the end of the Mosaic Covenant, that sort of thing, which really fits well with what the Hebrew writer is saying. So if I can, if I can here, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just share a screen here and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of sketch out what you just said in real primitive form here. So I'm going to grab a little thing here. Uh, let's grab, how about we grab that? And I'm going to grab this here and that box is going to represent the Jewish era. Uh, let's say, let's say this would be, um, Mount Sinai would be right here, and we might put the destruction of Jerusalem down here, and of course we would let's put a, let's put the cross of Jesus in here, and so let's see we'll just do that with uh, this will represent the cross right here if I can just draw a little thing like that, and that'll represent the cross of Jesus. Okay, and so uh, so you would say the last days are kind of the end of this Jewish era. And what, what people sometimes say is uh, that the last days of the Messianic age, which would kind of be like, like this, and maybe I need to move that a little to the right, move it a little to the right. I'm not sure I can. I'll try. Yeah, we can. Kind of like that, right? And so really what you have here in the intersection of these, we, I should have used Venn diagrams, right? In the, in the intersection of these, you have the, the first century. And when, when you quote the passage that you quoted in Hebrews chapter three, I mean, Hebrews chapter one, uh, how, how did you quote it? How does your translation read? Um, I paraphrased it, but uh, God who at various times in different ways, spoken times passed by the fathers, or to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Which, which either way, whether you look at the last days as being, uh, as being this whole era here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Whether you look at the days as being that whole era, the last days would just be this era here. Or if you look at the last days as all of this, still Hebrews chapter one fits it, it cause it's written right, right in here, right? Right. And, and if we look at first Corinthians chapter 10 and, um, in verse uh, 11, now these things happen unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages uh, are come. That very much corresponds with your idea. You've got uh, kind of the culmination of an age, right? Right, right. And, and then you have in uh, Acts chapter 2, you have Peter quoting from Joel chapter 2, where it talked about in the last days, God will pour forth of his spirit. And uh, Peter here, right after the cross. So we're talking about, you know, right here, Peter is preaching that what is happening on the day of Pentecost there in Acts 2, right after the cross, is uh, what was prophesied by Joel, who was talking about what would happen in the last days. So you're right. I think you do end up at the same place, really practically speaking that a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, if I just put the Old Testament prophecies back here that are about the last days, a lot of them are especially about this period of time in here. And so we do kind of end up at the same place, right? Right, right, exactly. Any other comments about that? 
Well, let's go on then. So in Micah chapter four, it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Let's talk about the house of the Lord and people streaming to it real quickly. Thoughts? Well, as I think we think about this with the messi with the Messiah in mind, I think about all of these people from all different nations, from all different places that are going to have one central place to go to. Um, and of course that is in, in Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a physical mountain or anything like that, but it's ultimately in Jesus. What's another, another name for the house of the Lord in the old Testament? Uh, the temple, the temple and, and the, the predecessor to the temple that Solomon built was the, the tabernacle. And what did those things uh, connote? What idea was in, inherent in those things? God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. Right. And so God defines a people and he says, I will dwell with you. When he told Moses to build the tabernacle, he said, um, make a uh, house that I may dwell among you. Um, if, and that's a paraphrase, but it's back in Exodus, the 25th chapter in verse nine, uh, verse eight, verse eight or nine. And so that, that was the idea there. But of course, when we come to the New Testament, we find that really, that was all foreshadowing the spiritual dwelling place of God, which is the church. And so then when we talk about the house of the Lord and people streaming to it, yeah, Joe. Well, no, go ahead. Go ahead and finish your thought. Well, the house of the Lord and people streaming to it, instead of it just being a, a dwelling place of God amongst Jews, we see in the New Testament people from all nations coming to be a part of the house of the Lord. And we see that prophesied in the Old Testament. So uh, maybe resisting the temptation to make any sort of political uh, statement. Um, how many times have you ever seen somebody uh, fall up a mountain? <laughs> uh, you know, the way this described here is, is flowing or streaming up to a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not the way that uh, gravity works. Uh, this is supernatural. This is, uh, you know, miraculous, if you want to say. Um, uh, this is a spiritual statement that's being made. I really like the, the concept there that this is going against the, the, the earthly, worldly things. Um, uh, we're, we're being uh, drawn up to, to God. So without making any kind of allusion to um, the steps going up to an airplane, we will go right <laughs> on to verse two. <laughs> <laughs> Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. From Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, so I think if you pay attention, you'll notice that Zion seems to be connected with Jerusalem. Just because it says from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So as I understand it, Zion was the mountain on the southern, the tip, the peak on the southern, in the southern portion of Jerusalem, where David's, where, where had been the city of David. And it becomes a, it becomes a way of referring to not only Jerusalem, but really the throne of God and, and his people. Um, and so this is a concept that we see not only in Micah, but in Isaiah and others that God is going to use this nation of Israel to be a light to the world. And Jesus is going to be the ultimate expression of that light. And all right, so that's the idea is we're working our way down through here. 
the next few verses. Uh, one of you guys want to read verses three through five here. Sure. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They, uh, then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God. Forever. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just noticing the picture of peace. All these nations coming together uh, to be a part of this, and their weapons are being turned into agricultural tool, tools. Uh, hammer their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. So this is a fantastic picture. This is a picture about some future time when... Uh, many peoples are going to come into the house of God, and there's going to be someone ruling who is going to judge, and he is going to render decisions, and it's going to result in peace amongst all these peoples. Then we get to verse 6 and 7, and there are some wonderful things said about what will happen in that day. Verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I'll gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. That sounds great. You just put a period there. Great. But verse eight, uh, well, I'm sorry, verse nine. Verse nine says, now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? So he's talked about a future time when there's going to be this ruler and there's going to there are all these people that's going to be coming together and there's going to be peace. He says, why are you crying? Is there, is there no king among you? At the time that Micah writes, was there a king? Yeah, it was in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Exactly. He says that right up front in Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. So there, were, there was a king at the time he's writing this, but... Not long after this, there was going to be, uh, well, the, the Babylonians were going to come in. They were going to defeat the people of Israel in the southern kingdom, Judah. They were going to carry them away. Jeconiah, their king, would be carried away into captivity. Zedekiah would be a puppet king. But after 11 years of his rule, um, he would be carried away. And, uh, and the city would be burned, destroyed. And the temple would be destroyed. And the people would actually be removed from their land and put in Babylon to live there. And so I think that's what we have in verses 9 and 10. And um, let's read verses 9 and 10. Uh, volunteer. Sure. Uh, now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pains have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pains. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. You shall go even to Babylon. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Who is described as a woman going through the pains of labor to give birth? Daughter of Zion. Yeah, and so what does that mean? Israel's oh. into captivity. Yeah, mm-hmm. They, going into captivity is their labor. It's the it's the hardship that they have to go through. 
of course, the metaphor is to produce a child. But right here in verses 9 and 10, the thing that was missing was a king. And so this is the hardship that they're going to have to go through before they have their king who is going to bring about all those things that we saw in the first part of chapter 4. The, the, the peaceful situation, the, the ruling and judging and, and the picture that resulted in a, uh, people dwelling together in peace. And so, uh, and it specifies in verse 10 of chapter 4, they're going to go to Babylon. And so we come down to chapter 5 and verse 1. Um, let's just start in verse 2. Uh, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Let's pause there. How should we connect that back to chapter four? What, what does that answer? What problem does that solve that we saw back in chapter four? So in four nine, there wasn't a king, but here he says there will be a ruler in Israel. Yeah. So Micah is writing about 700 years before Jesus. And at the time he's writing, there's a king, but soon there wouldn't be. And he's already anticipating that in this prophecy and talking about the people going into captivity and going through pain as a woman going through labor. But when a woman goes through labor, she produces a child. And the people are going to go through this difficulty and captivity. But when they come out the other side, not immediately, but when they come out the other side, they're going to, there's going to be a king born. And, and he's going to come from, it says, Bethlehem Ephrathah. What is Bethlehem Ephrathah? Uh, it's a little place, evidently, uh, according to the verse. A little yeah. among the thousands of Judah. It's a yeah. location, it seems like, for them. It's a, and we know, the, we know the village Bethlehem. Bethlehem sits about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's the place where David was from in the Old Testament. Why is that significant? So David was the faithful king um, uh, that uh, the Lord took pleasure in, that the Lord had promised that he would raise up a king uh, to, to rule them forever. Uh, thinking right. Of, uh, so David's seven. descendants were to be the kings. And... Um, David had been anointed to be king. They used this expression anointed, which was Messiah. And in the New Testament, it would be Christ. And the, at any given point, the one who was the descendant of David, who had a right to rule, was the Lord's anointed. And, was the, and, and now, they, when they go into captivity and they don't have a king, they're looking for the next anointed one, the ultimate anointed one, the, the Messiah the Christ, who is going to bring about all that peaceful picture and to whom all these nations are going to flow up the mountain. Um, and so that's, that's the idea here. Bethlehem is, is where the family of David was from. And of course, who do we know that was born in Bethlehem in the New Testament? Jesus was. Joe, I think we've lost Chase. I hope we get Chase back here in a moment. Um, yeah, he, he texted and said that he was going to have to step away for a second. Okay. All right. Um, so now let, let's come on down in the text, and then we want to step over to the New Testament. In verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, it doesn't just say, uh, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. It goes on and says, his goings forth are from long ago, 
from the days of eternity. So here's Micah, 700 years before Jesus, saying in the future, the one who's going to rule is going to come from Bethlehem, but he's from long ago. And so what's that saying? The, the Jesus existed before his physical birth and existed long before uh, Micah even. And then he's going to come back to that figure of the woman in labor, verse 3. <clears throat> Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, this one who's going to come from Bethlehem Ephrathah, will be our peace. Uh, there's several things that, that we want to talk about. First of all, Ephrathah, just thinking of the geography, it says Bethlehem Ephrathah. I'm sitting here right now about 30 miles from Ephrata, Pennsylvania, which I assume gets its name from this Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, do, are either of you, uh, do you, either of you feel confident you know what Ephrathah is in the Old Testament? You mean what the word means? No, I mean, what, what was it the same thing as Bethlehem? Or was it a region wherein I, Bethlehem lay, a territory? I, I always understood it. I could be wrong about this, but I thought it was just a more specific place within Bethlehem itself. Well, Bethlehem is pretty small, but I guess you could have something even smaller. And some people think Bethlehem was a specific place within Ephrathah or Ephrathah. And some people think that Bethlehem and Ephrathah are the same thing. See, I probably, then I probably had that argument backwards then. I, I don't know. It really, people, people really aren't sure. If, if you pull up like a Bible map thing, you can't put Ephrathah or Ephrathah on it. Um, in so, Genesis about, chapter, go ahead. Are you going to say Genesis 35? No, I was going to say Genesis 48. But go to Genesis 35 because 48 refers back to it. Okay. So Genesis 35 uh, in particular... Uh, picking up about verse 16, uh, see if I can get there in time. Um, uh, then they journeyed from Bethel, where there was uh, but a little distance to go through Ephrath. Rachel travailed in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have, a, you will have this son also. So it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, she called his name Benomi, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And, and then later on in Genesis 48, it, it, that incident is mentioned again when Jacob says, As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Is it um, uh, Ruth four eleven would be another one? Yes, right. Good. Yeah. Did you guys already say that? I'm sorry. Nope. Nope. We're waiting for you to say it. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, "We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem." Now, the, the thing about that is, whether Ephrath is exactly the same as Bethlehem or whether Bethlehem is being identified as Bethlehem in a territory called Ephrathah or, whether, or whatever the case, 
what it does, it serves to specify which Bethlehem we're talking about because there was another Bethlehem. And so this is pinpointing the Bethlehem associated with Ephrathah, whether that's another name for this Bethlehem or it's a territory. It's the yeah. Bethlehem. It's about six miles south of, of Judah. So just looking back over my notes, one of the things someone had said is that the word Bitlami or Bethlam, meaning house of flesh, is the Arabic or Arabic attempt to translate the word Ephrathah. And similarly, Bethlehem appears to be the Hebraic attempt to translate Ephrathah. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Okay, that's interesting. That's good. Where did you get that note? Uh, that would be from J.D. Douglas and Merrill C. Tinney's in, uh, New International Dictionary of the Bible. Excellent, excellent. All right. So um, maybe okay. just make a quick note here, if I could. Yep. Think about how significant Micah's words would be in light of what we just read in Genesis 35. What is it that's taking place there? Uh, Jacob's wife is giving birth, is in the pains of labor, is going to bring forth a child, and then Micah calls all of that to remembrance that as it was with Rachel and Benjamin, so it will be with the, the nation of Israel in the time of Christ. Nice connection, Joe. Really, yeah, a really beautiful uh, poetic connection for us there. Yeah, yeah, nice connection. All right. So, and then, you know, it looks like to us, this is a pretty obvious prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and that he would come from Bethlehem. And was it obvious to Jews, uh, say, in the first century uh, or Jews before the first century? Did the Jews understand that that's what this was? Did the Jews understand that this was a messianic text? Is yeah, messianic? yeah, that this is talking about where the Messiah would come from. Yeah, I believe so. So that would yeah. be Matthew 2, I guess would be our reference there, right? Right. Yeah, so Matthew 2, um, really, I guess, uh, whenever Herod... Um, yeah, so sorry, Matthew 2, verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they're quoting Micah chapter 5 in verse 2. Mm -hmm. And so here you've got a guy, Herod, Herod the Great, and he is king. He's ruling over the Jews, but he's not a Jewish king. He, he kind of identifies with the Jews, but he is not a Jewish king. He is not in the line of David. He's not the king they're looking for. And then you have these wise men coming saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, the last thing that any king who's in power wants to hear about is somebody else who's going to be king. Uh, so he wants to kill this would-be king. Um, so he inquires, where is this guy supposed to be born? And he calls the people who would know, the scribes and the chief priests who knew the scriptures. And they were able to tell him. They pointed to this passage in Micah chapter 5. And they could say, it's going to be Bethlehem. And so the wise men are sent to Bethlehem, and Herod disingenuously says, well, when you find the child, 
tell me about it so that I can come worship him because I want to worship him too. Of course, what Herod wanted to do was kill him. But the point is they could point to this village. Mm-hmm. They could know exactly where this was talking about. And so that's interesting. You have a prophecy of, of where Jesus would be born 700 years in advance and everybody knew it. I hate to, yeah. to use that phrase. It's kind of been ruined, but everybody knew it. They knew what that, yeah. well, Herod didn't know it. But other people did. Look at John 7. Yeah, John, was, yeah. I was going to say what's going to be important about the one Jeff's taken us to now is, of course, this was at Jesus' birth in Matthew 2 when he's a baby, but right. people are still recognizing this about him even when he's an adult. Yeah, so in John 7, uh, you have the Feast of Tabernacles going on, and uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and there's just a whole lot of talk about Jesus. Uh, for example, in verse 25, some therefore of, the, of Jerusalem said, is not this he whom they seek to kill? And lo, he speaks openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the rulers indeed know that this is the Christ? In other words, do, do the rulers know this is the Messiah? That's what they're asking. Do, do the rulers know this is the one who's supposed to come to be our king? And they're discussing it. They talk about the signs. Verse 31, of the multitude, many believed on him. And they said, when the Christ shall come, when the Messiah will come, whoever he is, will he do more signs than those which this man hath done? The implication be, you know, this guy's doing enough signs that it looks like he'd be the one. And then we come down in the text. And verse 40 Uh, After Jesus has spoken, some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, said, this is of a truth, the prophet. And others went a step further and said, this is the Christ, meaning the Messiah. But some said, what? Does the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes out of the seed of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The irony is they knew the prophecy they knew that the Christ was supposed to come from Bethlehem, but that was a stumbling block for them because they didn't know Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. All they knew was he'd grown up in Galilee, specifically Nazareth. So they was well, it can't be this guy because the Christ comes from Bethlehem. But for us, it's confirmation. The Jews understood that prophecy. Any comments there? I was yeah. looking up just the other day. You know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Uh, they're not alive. They're not. They're those scrolls. That... <laughs> okay. Thank you for that, Chase. <laughs> yeah. Part, manuscripts found in the caves uh, by a shepherd boy. Uh, Threw a rock, didn't he? And heard a shatter and went up there and found them. Yeah. And so they've been, they've been studying those scrolls for decades now. They were found back in the 40s in the 20th century. And the, the thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is we, we have the scriptures. We have the, what's in the Dead Sea As far as the scriptures are concerned, we have what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls in our Bibles. But the nice thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is these are copies that existed of the scriptures in Jesus' day and earlier. So, so now... If people say, well, we, we don't know that what our Bible say is what it said 2,000 years ago. Yeah, actually, we do. We do. Um, of course, we've had a lot of, of Greek manuscripts that come from near the time of Jesus. But now they've got these manuscripts that include a lot of Old Testament passages, including Micah chapter 5 and the first two verses. And uh, so we have, and, and the 
particular manuscript that includes Micah chapter five and the first two verses found in, in a cave there uh, on the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea. Um, that particular one is from the time of, it, it, of Herod. And so it's Herodian. So roughly around Jesus' lifetime, we have this sect of the Jews down in the desert um, who are collecting these scriptures and their scriptures have this passage in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which tells us this is not something that Christians wrote later on and said, oh, look, there was a prophecy of the birth of Jesus. No, this was something that existed. Well, we already knew that. I mean, when, when Matthew tells us that the scribes and the, and the chief priests were able to point to Micah, the fifth chapter, and when we look at John 7, we see that the Jews understood that the Christ was supposed to come from Bethlehem. We know that that this prophecy was in place and the people understood it. Any comments or thoughts there? Okay, now let's go back to uh, Micah and talk about this concept of peace a little bit. So he's going to be ruler, this one who is going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be ruler and he's going to bring about peace. Verse five, let's talk about peace. I'm for it. You're for it, but uh, but you all three of us can point to a time in our lives where if we had died then, we would have been condemned because we were not at peace with God. And I, and I hope anybody who's listening to this can think about that as well. If, uh, unless, you know, we have an expression, people say, I've made my peace with God. Have you ever heard that expression? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can't. You cannot make your peace with God. Why can, why can you not make your peace with God? What, what is it that stands between us and peace with God? Wrongdoing, sin. I mean, yeah. there, there's, no, there's nothing in and of ourselves we can do to undo the sin that's been committed. It's Which is error. exactly what would be necessary. We'd have to undo our sin, but we can't. Right. And so, so we've got a problem. You know, you go back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. That's not a picture of peace with God. That's a picture. Yeah, in of, fact, you think about those cherubim that are standing guard at the garden. It's just the idea that there's now separation and things are different now. It's just an unpeaceful right. situation. That's yeah. right. But then when God starts doing things like saying, build a tabernacle that I may dwell among you, he is, he is indicating, I've got a plan in mind. I can fix this problem between us. I've got a plan in mind whereby I can establish peace. And that, and that plan is Jesus. Because Jesus dies for our sins. He takes punishment for our sins so that we don't have to bear the punishment for them. God can view us as acquitted. And so we can be at peace with God. Um, there's a beautiful picture in Ephesians, the second chapter. Let me turn over there. <clears throat> Paul here is writing to Gentiles. Um, so this is interesting because uh, you think of the Jews, they had the tabernacle, the house of God. They had the temple, the house of God. Jesus was a Jew, a Jewish Messiah. But we talked about the prophecy in Micah was looking forward to a time when all nations, people, people from all nations would flow up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And so we come here to Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul is writing to Gentile Christians and he says in verse 11, remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, 
in the flesh, made by hands, that you are at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, they were not at peace with God. But now in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are made near in the blood of Christ. I believe that far off is an allusion to the actual physical separation that was manifested in the temple in the first century where you had courts surrounding the temple proper and the inner courts were courts where the Jews could go, but the Gentiles could not go in the, into the inner courts. They could only go to the outer court. And there was actually a barrier between the outer court and the inner court that had signs up that said any Gentile who goes beyond this point is responsible for his own death. So they had to stay far off. And, and Paul is alluding to that to talk about a spiritual far-offness, if I can make up a word. And the Gentiles were far off. And he says in verse 14, that at verse 13, they've been made near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace. Christ is our peace, who made both one, both Jew and Gentile. So they're reconciled together and are at peace together. And he broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he may, might create in himself of the two, of Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you that were far off, to the Gentiles, and peace to them that were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit unto the Father. So Jew and Gentile reconciled together, and both in one body reconciled to God and at peace with God. I mean, isn't this exactly the idea of all nations streaming upward to this mountain of Zion? Isn't that exactly what this is talking exactly. about? What's on top of the mountain? The Lord. I think the it's house, interesting. The house of God. And, then, and yeah. then you get down to verse 21 and 22. And what Paul says is these people have become the holy temple in the Lord, a habitation of God in the spirit. You mean God's spirit dwells in us? Yeah. <laughs> Joe? It's almost like we could spend a whole podcast on that. We could, we could, but let's not. We only have seven minutes. <laughs> Joe. Uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, so come uh, up with something. The, the passage that you were just talking about of the Gentiles being far off and the Jews being near, um, I just have this imagery, and, and I think it's confirmed in the passage you were just reading. So the Gentiles were far off, they, they couldn't even come close. The Jews could come near but they still couldn't come into the most holy place. Right. The verse read said that they both have access now. Right. And Hebrew writer says the same thing by saying that we can now come, boldly come before yep. the throne of grace. Confidently. Um, so, you know, it, it's almost like the Jews were close mm -hmm. to the cookie. You know, they were, they were near, they still didn't have the peace. Yeah. They were still sinners. And even the high priest, I, I try to think about the Day of Atonement as Leviticus 16 outlines it. And the priest who had sin himself, as the Hebrew writer points out, and here he has this blood of an animal to try and atone for the sins of the entire people. Just I think about the amount of fear he would still have approaching that, that um, most holy place as he goes to sprinkle the blood on it. And then there's the Hebrew writer who says, 
with the blood of Jesus, we confidently approach God and right. say, this will suffice. This gets it. I know it does. And it's not an arrogant approach, but it's a confidence in what the Lord has given us to give to him. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, I love the Hebrew writer really wraps a lot of this stuff well. Yeah. So, so now, so, oh, go ahead, Joe. Well, I was going to say, like trying to, to think about this text in Matthew or Micah 4 and 5, speaking about the nations and to the ends of the earth, all, all those different passages, uh, all those different words through these passages. Um, I'm reminded of Isaiah 59 uh, that talks about how he says that the Redeemer will come to Zion. But then in Romans 11, Paul takes that and quotes it, but he doesn't quote it exactly. He says the Redeemer will come out of Zion. And so it's kind of neat to think about Isaiah looking forward to the coming of this Redeemer, of this Savior that we're reading about here. And he's going to come to Zion. That was one of the verse, one of the words that's used three or four times here in Micah. He's going to come to Zion, but it's not going to stop there. Then he's going to come out of Zion and think about the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, Jews and Gentiles both being saved. He's going to come out of Zion to, to be the redeemer to the ends of the earth, to, to save everybody. Yeah. Great. Okay. So now, stepping back, <clears throat> if, I, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you are curious about the Bible and you find yourself wondering, well, how can you believe it's all true? Well, what we've been looking at is, uh, on the one hand, a, a, a consistent plan developed from the beginning of the Bible to the end, uh, from, the, from the time of, of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, even before that, but we've been talking about it from the time of Moses in the wilderness, down to the time of Jesus, and the, the cons, well, actually, we started back in the Garden of Eden when man was separated from God, and God had a plan how he was going to fix that. And you see this consistent development of this plan all through there. But not only that, but you have evidence that this is, this is inspired, that this is revelation from God, because you have Micah, 700 years before Jesus, able to predict the future, the very village where the one would come from, who would be the Messiah, who would be the Christ. And it's not like we're just looking back at that and making something out of that. The priests and the scribes in Herod's day uh, recognize that that's what it, guys with the, with the priests and the scribes renowned for being advocates of Jesus as the Christ. About as far from it as possible. Now, we are talking about perhaps a difference in generation, because here in Matthew 2, we're talking about those who are priests and scribes when Jesus was born, and then when he's teaching, we're 30 years later. But the fact is, the religious elite of that era were the religious elite of that era, and they were a people who were like the religious elite today. Uh, they were more caught up in their own traditions, and they were more caught up in their positions of power and wealth than they were in really being concerned about the truth. And they were not fans of the idea of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. But they recognized that that's what Micah 5 was about. And then Jesus fulfills it. Any, any final thoughts there, guys? I, I don't Very know. I, just, study, thanks. I mean, what, what you just said about 
they understood that it was him, but they didn't accept who he was and they didn't hit their picture of the Christ didn't fit into what Jesus was doing. And I think that's a problem that you still see today is that people might have, they might be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't fit into what they want him to. And so it bothers them. And, yeah, and so lots I think ways. that's still consistent. And, I, and I'll, I'll throw out a couple of ways here. There are lots of ways people have a preconceived of some people, their conception of the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that would make uh, America the greatest nation on earth. No, that's not what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Other people have a concept of the gospel of Christ that it would eradicate poverty on earth. Jesus said, the poor you'll have always with you. People have all their own agendas as to what they think the gospel should accomplish and what the Christ should be about. Uh, but, but really, what Christ is about is establishing peace between us and God. And that's the thing that we really need, because we're going to stand before God in the day of judgment. We're either going to stand before him as being at peace with him or not, as his friends or his enemies. And it's only through Christ that we can be standing before him as friends. All right. Well, we will see everyone next week. Thank you for the time today and may God bless you.